This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Nelling. This week's guest is Dr. Allison Van Eneman, a genomics and biotechnology researcher at the University of California, Davis. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by CHS Inc. CHS is a leading global agribusiness owned by farmers, ranchers, and cooperatives across the United States. Learn more at chsinc.com. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with Dr. Allison Van Edenham next. In rural America, there are three things that never change. The land, the determination of the families that farm it, and the loyalty of their co-ops, which provide the markets, inputs, and agronomic expertise farmers and ranchers need to stay profitable. CHS, the nation's leading cooperative, is proud to connect member cooperatives and producers to the value of an energy, grains, and food company they own. To learn more, visit chsinc.com. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. In the debate over genetically engineered plants and animals, Dr. Allison Van Enenem says science has left the room. The genomics and biotech researcher says the conversation should move to how biotechnology and plant and animal breeding can resolve issues for which there may be no other practical response. Van Edenham was inspired by Dr. Norman Borlaug's work in plant breeding to help solve sustainable food production with livestock. And while there's plenty of evidence of success thus far, she says we've only seen the beginning of opportunity with genetic engineering in food production. Genetic engineering, of course, is, is a, describes a breeding method that introduces a useful genetic variation from one species to another. And to date, we've really had mostly plant, genetically engineered um, plants. And there are examples, for example, disease-resistant papaya that was developed by the public sector that's growing in Hawaii that saved that entire industry from this devastating viral disease. Um, and there are many more examples of, of breeders that are working on disease-resistant plants and animals that I think haven't yet come to market for a number of reasons, but partly due to the very expensive regulatory process around bringing these products to market. But we've also, as, as geneticists, really advanced our abilities to make genetic changes and, and some of the new technologies like the gene editing that you've probably heard a lot about, the CRISPRs and the TALINs, where we can go in and tweak the DNA and, and maybe turn off a gene that enables the plant to no longer be maybe susceptible to a virus um, or in my breeding program with cattle we're working to turn off a gene that makes them um, susceptible to respiratory disease or pneumonia. Um, we've also tweaked a gene so that uh, dairy cattle no longer grow horns and normally they're uh, actually removed from the animals um, when they're babies uh, using a process called disbudding which is basically using um, heat to to kill the horn tissue and we're using a genetic approach to really solve what is an animal welfare problem to just basically have them so they don't grow the horns just like Angus cattle don't grow horns. So there's all sorts of applications I think in, in both plants and animals that are fundamentally different to that first generation of crops which for the most part helped farmers to grow them either because of insect protection or um, herbicide tolerance or, or virus resistant and so that's that's what's on the future and that's I think what gets me passionate because I do see so many useful applications especially around disease resistance. I want to borrow a phrase from a member of the science community who introduced you at a program in Oregon and the phrase was science says we can but society asks should we. Can you help to explain perhaps some of the angst from the consumer of the day 
with regard to this field of genetic engineering? <laughs> yeah, well, it, it's certainly a very um, political topic, no doubt about that. And it's, it's kind of intriguing to me as a breeder who uses many different breeding methods how this one particular breeding method of genetic engineering is so controversial when others like radiation mutagenesis and chromosome doubling and artificial insemination are really not generating that level of angst and I think that unfortunately this breeding method has kind of got caught up in um, almost a PR battle um, amongst groups who either support it or, or don't support it for whatever reason and science kind of left the room and unfortunately um, I think there's been little um, thoughtful discussion around how these techniques could be used to, to solve real problems that we have in agriculture and, and problems that are going to be exacerbated in the future with regards to variable climate and growing populations. And so we, we often are having debates around this first generation of crops and maybe who developed them and which companies were involved and concern about multinational ownership of the seed supply and all of these other kind of auxiliary issues. But we haven't really had a discussion about should we and you can't really have that until you know, well, why would we? So in other words, what problems could be solved and what other solutions are there to those problems? And in the case of, you know, disease resistance, it really is a case where genetics can solve the problem and there may be no other solution. For example, um, banana wilt virus in Africa, there really isn't another solution to that problem. It's destroying the banana trees there and there's actually a genetically engineered variety that's resistant to that banana wilt. And so I think when society's deciding should we, they have to have a real clear understanding of what are the potential benefits and the risks so that you can have a deliberative debate about it. But unfortunately, often all we hear are potential risks or conceptual risks quite frequently without any discussion of the benefits and what problems we could actually solve with this technology. I noted a consumer survey recently where a majority, over, in fact over 75% of those polls said they were concerned that GMO might be a part of their food, but an even greater number were concerned that DNA was in their food. Yeah, I saw that same survey. Unfortunately, the way you ask those type of questions, you can often get get a response that you want. I think there was something like 80% what a DNA labeled on, in their food, and it, it does suggest a, a basic you know, misunderstanding about the fact that all food contains DNA, and you know, if you ate a banana today, you, you are digesting banana DNA right this minute, um, and I doubt you're going to have any banana uh, traits by tomorrow. It, it is frustrating, but I, I really think that although um, there's a lack of maybe understanding of, of genetics in the general population, that this, this discussion is less about trying to inform people to change their minds as much as it is about talking about um, what this technology can do to, to, to solve problems. And I think that's where there hasn't been um, obvious demonstrable benefits to the general public and there's been a lot of misinformation and fear-mongering by groups that are opposed to the technology. And if you don't see any benefit but you've been told maybe it's going to do something really bad to you, then the public quite sensibly says, well, I'll just avoid it then, <laughs> um, even though that's not what the science says. And I think the scientists for 20 years have been standing on the sidelines going, but, but there's nothing, there's no safety issue there. You know, the National Academy just came out with that big report and people that are opposed to it, it was, it was just like, you know, 
flicking a bug off their shoulder. They're not going to pay any attention to that um, and just continue on as if um, there is some safety concerns. And so how do we change that discussion is, is really, I think, as a public communicator, what I'm interested in because we're not getting anywhere um, just yelling at each other and, and nobody hearing you know, it, it, either side. Um, and it's really forestalling the use of the technology by breeders um, to solve real problems. And those problems aren't going away and haven't gone away. And so if, if we, we can't use this technology, then how do we solve those problems? And I think that the costs and benefits there and, and what's the, what is the impact of not using the innovations in breeding and forestalling the use of this technology by especially public sector breeders who have traditionally been responsible for improving our plants and animals um, for agriculture. You know, there's very real costs associated with doing nothing. Um, and I think that discussion is, to me, um, you know, more, more productive than, um, you know, the, the tired old discussions around genetic engineering, which um, is really, after 20 years in this field, <laughs> mm-hmm. I've, I've, I want to move on to something more constructive. And so how do we get that dialogue to be more constructive? But there's still there is one side of this debate. And I, I recall Prince Charles said, there are some things meant for God and God alone. And in 1999, I was in Japan, and I I listened to the people there talking about the Frankenstein food that the U.S. was producing. How do you get past the fear and address this either as a scientist or as an individual to help people embrace very complex things about their daily sustenance? With all due respect to Prince Charles, I think that if you look at all of our plants and animals, it isn't God that created a Chihuahua and a Great Dane from their ancestor, the wolf. And I think that humankind has had very real and dramatic uh, impacts on the, the appearance and the characteristics of both our plants and animals using conventional breeding. And so the appearance of, of our plants and animals have already had a tremendous amount of, of human intervention. And I guess that I have a hard time thinking that there's some technologies that are off the table when they can be used in a safe way to address some of the problems that we have in our food supply. So I guess I, I don't really agree with that kind of naturalistic kind of um, approach that, that in, in certain things uh, belong to God and God alone. I think that uh, humankind is already using a lot of different technologies and, and you can't ignore the benefits that have derived from human innovation and, in, and invention on all facets of, of our life. I mean, think of your iPhone. <laughs> um, and why would you not want innovation in agriculture, which is probably the industry that has the biggest environmental footprint of all industries on Earth? Um, and obviously we require it for our sustenance. And as a, as a mother myself, you know, I've got two children and it's, it's up to me to, to um, look at the science around how I raise my kids. And so, you know, I look I look to things like um, pasteurization of milk. My kids have had their childhood immunizations. And similarly, I look at how our food's produced, and my choice in the marketplace is to try to purchase food that I think has the lowest environmental footprint on our planet um, because I want my kids to inherit a planet that has, um, you know, healthy, healthy planet. And as parents, we have an obligation, really, to make sure we're making decisions based on the best available science and not based on scaremongering or marketing campaigns, putting out misinformation. Can you help me understand where gene editing fits inside of or beside genetic engineering or GMO? (laughs) 
people like to put things in buckets, right? This is GMO, it's bad. This is, this is not GMO, it's good. And really, the difficulty is that, you know, it's becoming so difficult to distinguish between these different technologies and, and gene editing is a classic example. So gene editing basically enables you to go in in a very precise way and go to exactly the location in the entire genome where you want to make a double strand break. And you can say, I want to go to chromosome 10, gene number 6,533 and make a double strand break there. And that may result in inactivating the gene that happened to be located at that location and so maybe in the case of my cattle you no longer make protein where the virus is able to um, infect that cow and so it's now no longer susceptible for example to pneumonia so you can make those kind of changes but you can also make that double-stranded break and insert a gene there and that gene might come from the cow itself so in the case of my Holsteins that don't grow horns, we basically inserted the same allele or, or variant of the gene that the Angus carry. So we've got a cow gene in now a Holstein cow that doesn't grow horns. Or I could put in a gene from another species, and that's exactly analogous to genetic engineering in terms of bringing in useful genetic variation from a different species. And so when you say gene editing, it can be used for all sorts of different things, and I can get the same exact characteristic by using different breeding methods. So, for example, radiation mutagenesis creates double-stranded breaks in genomes, and that's been used to develop many of our plant species. I think there's something like 2,300 registered varieties used in all different types of agriculture that have been created using this radiation mutagenesis, which basically breaks up chromosomes. And so, to me, it's just this great big set of tools that we use and I have a really hard time putting them in different buckets and saying this bucket is illegal and this bucket is perfectly okay. I think it depends on the product you produce, what the risks might be and therefore that's really where the where you need to focus your attention, not on which particular breeding method you happen to use to produce that. Are you able to determine the gender of an animal? Certainly in, in livestock breeding, there are efforts underway to accomplish that. And, and I'll give you the example of, of egg-laying chickens. So I'm sorry to tell you guys, but um, there's not a lot of use for male-laying chickens in an egg farm um, because you don't produce eggs. And so half of the chicks that get hatched on um, laying operations are male, and they are destroyed shortly after um, hatch. And so there's a group at CSIRO in Australia who are working on approaches such that they develop only female um, chickens on laying farms so that we basically solve an animal welfare problem, which is what to do with those male chicks that hatch. And also, of course, it addresses you now need half as many eggs to get the same number of female chickens that you needed um, when you when you were um, hatching both males and females. So there are effort, efforts underway. And then I think probably the slippery slope argument would say, well, well, does that mean then that we're going to be doing that in human <laughs> breeding? Or And I, I guess I... I I kind of differentiate plant and animal breeding for agricultural purposes from, from human reproduction and the ethical um, issues associated there because I, I see them as very different things. I mean, we've been breeding plants and animals for, for many hundreds of years using very um, regimented selection programs of who's the best male and who's the best female, whereas in human um, reproduction, at least in my experience, I know I met my husband at a Super Bowl party. Uh, <laughs> I didn't do a genetic evaluation on him. Um, I just thought he looked good in blue jeans. So, you know, I think that we need to really be careful to, to separate when we're talking in this um, 
kind of approach to improvement, we're really talking about plants and animals and, and separate it from the ethical issues around, for example, sex selection in human offspring and that type of thing. I wonder how the world would receive an announcement someday that through genetic engineering or modification we could turn off cancer or turn off other diseases that have been so tragic for so many. Well, and I mean, I was just at bio conference down in San Francisco, and that's exactly what's happening. I mean, the, the advances in medical biotechnology just took my breath away. Um, some of the things they're doing in terms of gene therapy for people who have many different diseases and then also looking at approaches so that they won't transmit that on to their offspring. And it's kind of intriguing how accepted biotechnology is in, in human medicine and, and there's many bio, you know, genetically engineered drugs on the market to cure uh, cancer and, and it gets used routinely in all sorts of ways in medical biotechnology. But when it comes to food and agriculture, it's, it's as if it's a totally different technology, but it's exactly the same methods. And so why is there such distrust in the food applications when there's this wholehearted endorsement of the medical applications? And it's you know, kind of an interesting question to ponder. Why, why the difference? What are your thoughts with regard to the labeling debate? The law that's about to come into effect in Vermont and the struggle now in the Senate uh, to come up with an answer uh, to how food should be labeled, whether they're genetically modified, genetically engineered, or if they've had genes edited. Yeah, it's that's talking about a political debate right there. Um, and I guess, you know, I can give you my scientific answer, which is there is no there there. What are you labeling? You know, sugar from sugar beets, just sucrose, and sugar from sugar cane is sucrose. What's the difference? But one needs a label and one doesn't because of the breeding method that was used to produce the plants that produce the sugar. Um, you know, that doesn't make any logical sense. And I guess, I, you know, as a consumer, what personally kind of concerns me is I know how widespread the use of GMOs are in especially American agriculture in terms of corn and, and soy. And so it's used a lot in products like corn oil and soy lecithin. And so it's in a lot of, of products. And I know the logistics of, of supply chain segregation and keeping things, you know, separate that don't differ in any safety way based on the breeding method that was used to produce the particular product seems like kind of a strange uh, expenditure for us to want to put onto the food supply system. Um, I guess I, you know, I work, if I, if I make a 1% improvement in genetics, I'm, you know, I'm, I've made a huge, huge difference. And here we're going to actually decrease the efficiency and put additional costs on the burden on, on our food supply for something that has zero impact on the safety. And I guess for me, I, I like labels that that mean something in terms of safety. So if, if it contains peanuts, I need to know that because of peanut allergies. But uh, breeding method, it doesn't really tell me anything useful. So the papaya from Hawaii is going to have a, the same label that, you know, the virus-resistant papaya as, as an insect-protected corn. Well, what does, that, what does that tell me? It doesn't give me any useful information. So I see it as a, a very, um, obviously, political issue and, and one that I fear is going to be very expensive to address um, and really isn't improving. You know, I just wish that all the money that's been spent on labelling could have been spent on research to improve our, our plants and animals and, and, and do, do something that's constructive rather than what I see as a, as a rather um, futile debate around this topic. What are your concerns regarding 
genetic engineering and what are your hopes regarding genetic engineering? My concerns regarding genetic engineering is that the politicised debate around it has really stopped its adoption by um, small companies in the public sector in terms of improving plants and animals. And that's, I think, unfortunate because there are many applications where it's been used to do things like fungus-resistant strawberries or disease-resistant plants where those plants cannot be adopted into um, by farmers. And so they keep on you know, having to spray fungicides or having yields lost or animals lost to those diseases. And so I think there's been some fascinating developments in the last year or so where, for example, the disease called PERS in pigs, which costs the pork industry around $2 million a day, has been addressed by gene editing, which just turned off a gene in the pig so that it's no longer susceptible to that virus. And the company called Genus, that is responsible for a lot of the pig breeding, has said that they would like to take that through commercialisation and use that line of pigs that doesn't get sick from this virus. So I see that as a really hopeful sign that there is a potential to start using these um, technologies to address um, problems in agriculture and to move the discussion away um, from particularly herbicide-resistant crops where it's tended to focus to show how, in this case, you've got an animal that's resistant to disease. It doesn't require any more inputs or any type of pesticide use in any way. It just basically stops those pigs dying. Um, and that obviously has, has sustainability implications in terms of pork production. And it, it, it changes the discussion to an animal um, well-being and health trait and away from maybe some of the other uh, extraneous um, discussions around herbicides and, and large multinational corporations that wasn't kind of that isn't part of this discussion. So hopefully we can have a more constructive discussion around where it could be used and what are the risks and benefits associated with its use in these different applications. I certainly appreciate the opportunity to have had a conversation here and thank you for your thoughts and for your time. The title of this program is Open Mic and you have an open forum. I guess I'd like to finish with talking to the consumers that are listening to this because one of my pet peeves recently when I go grocery shopping is I'll see a lot of products labelled, or I, I would argue mislabeled, suggesting that they're lacking something that they never actually contain. Uh, you know, I'll see things that are made from crops that, that have no gluten labelled gluten-free. I'll see uh, milk labelled as being antibiotic-free when, in fact, all milk is tested and all milk is antibiotic-free to come to the market. And so there's this kind of marketing ploy to get people to buy products by tricking them into thinking that the other products that don't contain that free label contain whatever it is they're trying to avoid. And there's this real tension at the moment, I think, between marketing and science, or I would argue marketing and, and facts. And I would encourage um, people to buy products that say they're better because they taste better or they've got some attribute that makes them better and not because they're disparaging their competition because they're suggesting that their competition is somehow inferior. And I think we don't see that with the branded products, but we see that quite often around technologies like, for example, genetic modification or genetic engineering where 
it's suggested that somehow it's it's inferior to to have that particular breeding method used in the program. And I think if you actually look at the impacts of even the current generation of, of genetically engineered crops, things like the virus-resistant papaya and the insect-tolerant crops have dramatically reduced insecticide use. And I think that actually aligns with a lot of people's um, worldview around environment. And so don't let the marketers trick you. Um, look at actually what, what it is that you're buying and buy things that align with your core values and don't get fear-mongered into buying something that from a safety perspective any Our thanks to Dr. Allison Van Adenham, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by CHS Inc. CHS is a leading global agribusiness owned by farmers, ranchers, and cooperatives across the United States. Learn more at chsinc.com. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Alley.